Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Okay, today is our episode mostly about drinking, but also my favorite line that really encompasses this episode, it might end up being the title, we don't know, is we talk about how to create a life that you do not want to escape from. Look, we have really honest discussions about, you know, mental health and the, you know, Amanda is a therapist and obviously her book is about, it's a guide to creating like a sober life that you love and that you're happy in. But not everybody listening to this um, has an unhealthy no. relationship with alcohol. So we really discuss like the different types of relationships. Yeah. And understanding, alcohol. like, you know, yeah how healthy or unhealthy your relationship to alcohol is and if you're using it to escape from your life and ways to kind of see that more clearly. And I think just kind of helping bridge the gap between this all or nothing, no sum game where you have to either be this extreme alcoholic or you uh, never drink. And Sarah and I want to be clear, you know, Sarah and I have been investors in alcohol companies, uh, continue to be, and uh, we are not not endorsing alcohol. We're not saying you should quit alcohol. We're just opening up the conversation because we believe everything should be able to be questioned. Um, I think at the end of the episode, you'll really come away knowing that it's really everyone's personal choice. And so you'll figure out what your healthiest life is. And maybe that life involves alcohol. Maybe it involves it more minimally than you thought, or maybe it involves it not at all. Maybe there's a program you want to be connected to, and maybe there's not. And it's not for us to decide. And I think in this episode, we it's we we learned it's 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 it goes so much deeper than just like oh, I'm drinking because I want to get fucked up or I'm drinking because I want to this. Like we go to like the core of of why people feel the need to yes. drink. It goes much deeper. Okay, we have Amanda White here now. Amanda. It's a very, uh, we've, this is an episode that we've had a lot of requests to, to have an episode about drinking. Yeah. Um, I started talking about, well, first of all, Amanda wrote a book, Not Drinking Tonight. Um, and I think that this topic is very fascinating, uh, personal for me, for sure, and very topical for me because I have now quit drinking twice. I'm on my second sobriety streak. I'm two and a half months in, which is the longest I've gone. Um, and I have been struggling with this feeling around um, alcohol and not feeling like it's serving me in my life, but being really sad that I can't have my innocent glass of wine mm-hmm. because you never know when it's going to be a glass of wine that just kind of like makes you buzzed and you watch a little bit of The Bachelor and you have the best night of your life. <laughs> Or if it's going to be the glass of wine that makes me pick a fight with my husband that I did not need to and makes me feel really overly sensitive at a dinner party and more socially awkward than I expected to and wake up with anxiety at three in the morning and deep, deep shame the next morning when I like go to Pilates and feel like shit about myself and, you know, said something I shouldn't have at a dinner party. You just don't know which one it's going to be. So there's a lot we want to unpack here. For people, 
Sarah, do you have any takes? Listen, I have a very different relationship to alcohol and drugs, and I am someone who has just never had any interest in any of them. I am a complete control freak, and anything that um, makes me feel like I'm not in control scares me. Look, the reality is I dated an alcoholic drug addict from the age of 17 to 21, um, I went to Al-Anon, I, you know, cause I thought it was like, cool. Like I was, you know, I was 17. I was like, I have to go to Al-Anon. I need tools to, you know, see how to like be with this person who I'm going to marry. I mean, I was 17. So I don't know if that has factored in. Into- For the record, we're really, really happy you didn't marry him. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But like, it's just one of those things that is just, it doesn't play a role in my life. I'm sure if I were to analyze all the times where I go, like, I need a drink, it's always to avoid a situation or avoid a feeling, whether it be at a dinner party where someone's going to be there that I'm, you know, in a fight with, or it's, um, you know, just uncomfortable circumstances. Yeah, you've really never liked drinking, though. You've never used it as well, a tool. Well, the, it? the thing is, and then we're going to give you the floor for a while, but the thing for me is that I actually do like drinking. I do I do like feeling buzzed. I do like that it makes me like a little bit loose and uninhibited. I think it serves a great purpose if it's like the first time. You are time, fun when you drink. The first time you're sleeping with somebody, you know, like, because I think good sex is all about being uninhibited. Like that's actually how you have good sex. I mean, this is just my perspective. And so I think that always helps. It's been a while since I've, you know, had sex for the first time. But um, anyways, I... Land like, the plane, Sarah. I'm going to land the plane. What I what what I do not like is the next day. I actually think I'm someone who is allergic to alcohol. And so it's the next... <laughs> it's the next... Sarah thinks what? she's allergic because she thinks that um, <laughs> when Sarah will wake up the next day and be like, I- I'm allergic to alcohol, you guys. I have a headache. I feel weird. I don't <laughs> feel good. I-, I need an Advil. And I'm like, that's called a hangover. It's yes. not an allergy. It is a hangover. <laughs> So anyways, Aaron and I both are, um, we, our relationship to alcohol is different, but I think that in this episode, there's so much more to unpack than just like, what is your relationship to alcohol? And we want to unpack all those things. So Amanda, tell us you are a therapist. You are, we're going to give a whole intro to you, but give us just a little bit of your background. Yeah. So I'm a licensed therapist. I'm also sober myself. I've been sober for over seven years and I specialize in working with women specifically who struggle with their relationship with alcohol, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, all of that kind of stuff. So I really get it kind of from the personal perspective and also from, um, the perspective as a therapist And I think really the whole reason of me writing this book was I think that we tend to talk about alcohol in very black and white terms. You're either an alcoholic and you should never drink or um, you're a normal person and there's something wrong with you if you can't control your alcohol or you don't like alcohol or whatever. And I'm really a big believer and we need to expand how we talk about it. And I believe instead of asking ourselves the question, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a problem? I think what's way more important is to actually say, is alcohol making my life better? And what are, you know, what are the costs of it if it's not? And is it worth it? You also talk a lot about how alcohol is a form of escape and something that, you know, even if you're not listening to this episode 
relating it to drinking, you, you say how, you know, you, you say, I want to teach you how to build a life that you don't want to escape from. And that is universal because there are always things. I remember I was going through like, I don't know, a bunch of fertility shit and I was really frustrated and it was so stressful and I wasn't allowed to drink. And I said to my very California, my fertility acupuncturist, I was like, this is fucked up because this process is like meant to break me. And so all I want to have is a glass of wine, but that's the one thing I'm not allowed to have. And she said, well, do you want to have the glass of wine because you really want it? Or do you want it because you don't want to sit in uncomfortable feelings? And it was the uncertainty of the whole thing and the stress of like, am I going to fuck this up? Or is my body going to do what I want it to do? That made me want to drink. And she was like, why don't you just sit with that feeling and see what that feels like? And the truth is, once I sat with it, it wasn't as bad as my anticipation of it. And so I think that's a universal thing that we we do kind of have lives you want to escape from. That That is what a glass of wine is, right? That is what yes. the joint is. That is what watching an episode of reality TV is. Like these are ways to not sit in our feelings. So I want to ask you about that. And I also want to say that yesterday specifically, it was really funny that we were having this episode today. So I have COVID. My husband has COVID. He's much sicker than me. I was taking care of him all day. Obviously we can't have anyone at the house, right? I'm cooking for him. I'm then I'm cleaning, then I'm nursing him and he's, you know, between us, a little needy when he's sick. Okay. <laughs> and I was just fucking annoyed yesterday. I was like, it was six o'clock and I was like, this is just Groundhog's Day over and over again. I'm sick of being stuck at home. I'm sick of feeling like I'm a short order cook. And every time I look at him, he has more dirty dishes he's handing me. And um just wait till you have kids, honey. I, just, know. <laughs> I mean, I I actually I really, oh my God. And and I said to Simon, I was like, I'm really annoyed because I really want to have a fucking glass of wine, but I'm two and a half months sober and I need like a sober coach for non-alcoholics. I said, I want to call someone and I need like someone, like a mentor or whatever, like a sponsor. Why do you think you're not an alcoholic? What? Because it doesn't. No, no, no. It's not destructive in my life. No, but I think I think we should go over like what is an alcoholic because I actually don't know the difference. Okay, well we'll ask that. But I was saying I really need a sponsor or someone to call Mm -hmm. because I was like I need someone to call right now to say like tell me to not have the glass of wine. But everyone I would call would tell me to have it because they're like you're not an alcoholic. You don't drink very much. Like I've never been someone who's you know, out of control when I drink and no Uh. one thinks I drink a lot or anything like that. So everybody would have said to me to have it. And I really wanted someone to tell me not to have it. Yeah. Can you be an alcoholic if you don't drink every day? Absolutely. But I think the most important question isn't, I think people get so stuck and obsessed with the idea of an alcoholic, whether they are and whether they're not. And I think like, I think there's two parts of this. So I think to me, I mean, one thing people don't know is the term alcoholic is really outdated, like in terms of, um, being a licensed therapist and diagnosing, like there is no diagnosis for an alcoholic. Mm. Um, there's alcohol is considered a substance use disorder and there's mild, moderate and severe. Um, but I think in general, what you said, you know, Aaron is really important because I agree with you. I think so many people say, well, if you aren't an alcoholic or you, you know, you aren't somebody that has a quote unquote problem, you should just let yourself drink. And there is no conversation about maybe drinking isn't serving you. Maybe that temporary relief of feeling less pissed off at your husband isn't worth, you know, breaking your sobriety 
or whatever, you know, the possibility of something not going well later. You know, the thing that really sits in my head is like the second you ingest alcohol, the second you ingest it, right? You said this, your body is desperately trying to get rid of it. The second, (laughs) the second it goes in your mouth, your body's fighting to get rid of it. Like just that in itself, mentally, that, that, that visual is like, ugh. Yeah. I mean, people forget that it, like we say alcohol and drugs, but it is a drug. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, we had a mutation that allows us to be able to ingest alcohol like millions of years ago. Well, did you read, um, I'm assuming you did Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman. So that was the first book that I read that made me kind of want to stop drinking. And she does not believe in the concept of an alcoholic. Um, And I know you read this. So her, her belief is that alcohol is poison. Yeah. And that it is literally like drinking gasoline, essentially. Wait, all alcohol, wine, beer, it's all the same? Is it all the same? It is. It's all the same. Yeah. So it's poison. And um, the reason we act drunk is because it's poison in our body and we're having an allergic reaction to it. And so her, her whole theory is, um, how did we decide as a society that if you are bad at drinking poison, mm-hmm. that you have a disease? Oh, that doesn't make sense. She says, you know, we live in a culture where we're not willing to make alcohol bad because that's just not cool or fun. So you're bad if you're bad at it. And I think that that's so eye-opening to people because it is so embedded in our culture. Like in the few months that I've not drank, yeah, I feel uncool. Yeah, you know, I have a new friend in my life. Um, she loves uh, a martini, loves to like drink. And I'm like embarrassed that she's getting to know me as like sober Aaron. Cause I just, it feels like it's like the new gluten-free. Like it's just not a cool thing to claim at a dinner, you know? Yeah. And- well, especially not if like you're recovering from like a real slump, right? Like we, we, we hold people on a pedestal whose life was unmanageable and, you know, went to rehab and we're like, oh my God, they're sober. And then we put them on a pedestal and we're so proud of them. But just regular people who have just decided like, you know what? I'm not drinking. People are like, oh, that's so weird. Like why? Yeah. I mean, when I told my parents (laughs) that I was going to stop drinking, they were like, you're being dramatic. This is just one of your like dramatic things. You're making your life harder. So can you tell us, Amanda, what got you here? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in recovery from an eating disorder and I was really struggling with, I kept, I kind of talk about my drinking as it was like Russian roulette. A lot of times when I drank, things were fine, Mm -hmm. but that one time out of however many was really bad and really not okay. Yes. And I couldn't deal with the ups and downs of it anymore. It just felt like it was not getting worth it. I kept setting goals that I wouldn't get into a fight with someone. I wouldn't, you know, leave a bar. I wouldn't sleep with someone that I didn't Mm -hmm. want to whatever. And I got so sick of it. And the last day I drank, I was a yoga teacher at the time and I taught yoga completely drunk, which was completely like (laughs) out of, you know, character for me. And I had had kind of lower bottoms where I, you know, drank more in college and stuff like that. But for me, that was just, I happened to pay attention that day and really listen when I thought to myself, I can't keep doing this anymore. This Mm -hmm. is insane. Did you decide in that moment, I'm going to stop drinking for a week or a month or forever? I decided that I would take, I think I said a 90 day break 
And I didn't know what that looked like. I was terrified, like I said, of like calling myself an alcoholic. I didn't want to tell anybody, but I knew something had to change. And I kind of saw the pattern that my life was going towards. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was fortunate enough to have a friend in my life who didn't drink also because I was in therapy at the time. And she was really instrumental in supporting me. And eventually I got to the point where I did go to AA for a bit. Um, but did. it was a big barrier initially because I, I called myself an alcoholic so I could go to AA, but I, I didn't feel like I was one. Well, I know people who really don't connect with the feeling of being an alcoholic. They really reject the idea of going to AA um, which I really do believe AA has been so helpful for so many people. And, and there are some people that are so extreme um, on the scale that they really need the stability and the support of a community um, to lean on and, and share their stories, I think, to keep them on track. But then there are people like us, right? I don't know if we're in the same category, yeah. but I feel the, the Russian roulette concept is exactly how I feel. I used to say like, Two times out of 10, I'd have the exact intended experience that I wanted from my glass of wine or three. I'd have the buzz. I'd have the looseness. I'd fly away a little bit in my mind. I'd elevate and lift out of my feelings. But the other eight times, honestly, it was like so acidic. It was hard on my stomach. I'd feel so much inflammation. I'd feel so bloated. I'd eat and be drinking at the same time. And I'd feel so sick. And I'd feel, I, I wouldn't feel less sensitive socially. I'd feel more sensitive to something that someone said. I'd have a harsher reaction than I wanted to. It was like, I, when I really thought about it, it actually was doing the opposite of what I was looking for it to do. And it was absolutely making my anxiety worse. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't make the connection. Um, cause everybody I know in the world says that they're anxious. Yeah. And (laughs) yeah, everybody says that they're anxious. And you said here, you said somewhere in the book that really stood out to me because we talk a lot about how unhappy people are or social media and all this stuff, but you said it in a different way. You said our brains evolved to live in a hunter-gatherer society, not in the modern society that we live in today, which is why we are suffering so much. And it really made me think about this idea that everything being like just a button away, like postmating our food instead of making our food, you know, FaceTiming with our friends instead of having to physically be with our friends, like the lack of effort it takes. I don't have to get up and go to a bookstore and like go down the aisles and like find the letter that the book starts with and ask the person what section it's in. Like the the gratification that comes with actually earning the things that you want. Yes. That's gone for us. And I really understand how that is a huge part of feeling happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's too easy. Yeah. And I think small, right? Like when that goes away, there is small gratification in cooking, in getting something, in providing for yourself and doing something. And when that goes away, I think we are like left with kind of bigger things that we need in order to feel happy. We need to look a certain way. We need to have a certain amount of friends. We need to, we expect ourselves, I think, to also feel happy 24 seven. And that's just completely, I mean, if you think about again, our hunter gatherer brain, like I say a lot, like, we're not designed to be happy 24 seven. Like our base state is surviving and that's what your brain cares about. Mm, your brain right. doesn't care if you're happy. And we, and we don't have right. to survive anymore. Right. <laughs> and, it's, and it's true what you said. We live in a, like, a culture where people are obsessed with happiness and being happy. Are you happy? Are you happy? Well, yep. she's not happy. He's not. It's like, it's too much. 
But if we're being honest, feeling happy feels better than feeling anxious and sad and filled with shame. And shame is, I think, by far the worst emotion or the most uncomfortable emotion. Right, but remember the last episode we did with... um on narcissism, and we talked about instead of becoming obsessed with, are you happy? Are you happy? Identify the things that bring you happiness. Yeah. Identify those things and fall and and focus on that instead of like this umbrella. Are you happy? Are you happy? It's like yes. I was just meaning more that the connection with alcohol and anxiety and and shame. Yeah. And I think that it's a lot more connected than we realize. And one of the things I've learned is. The, that everything in our body has an adverse reaction to something. Like if, you know, you do, you squash a feeling, it's going to pop up somewhere else. Yes. And so oh, the reason why you do wake up at three in the morning with anxiety, and, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, tequila makes me really, like, wired in the middle of the night, but, and, oh, wine makes me really wired because of the sugar. And, like, you're always kind of figuring out which alcohol makes you feel the least terrorized in the middle yes. of the night. And we don't think about the effect that that's having on us. And so mm-hmm. if everyone's anxious and everyone's stressed out and having a hard time, we don't realize the way that like when you push down those feelings and maybe you do get that, like you're saying the Russian roulette, let's say it's the one out of 10 or two out of 10 times that it really like does pull you out of your discomfort. Mm-hmm. It's always temporary. Yes. And it typically it makes back? it worse later. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what isn't talked about of any time you know, I love, there's an analogy of like, every time we solve a problem, it typically comes back on a more complicated level. Like if you think about if we, as a society solve the problem of, uh, talking on the phone that, right. That solved a huge problem of mail was super, super slow. Mm -hmm. And then we solve the problem of being able to communicate 24 seven. We also then lose, it's more complicated now to solve the problem of like social media and being connected to our phones than mm-hmm. to solve the problem of we have to spend the day not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an example with alcohol specifically of when you kind of take a shortcut and you try to solve the problem of not dealing with your feelings, you might temporarily be able to escape them, but they're going to come back more intense and you haven't actually done the work to process the feeling and work through it. So it's going to kind of just compound over time. The timing of us talking about Saqqara is perfect because I it agree. is the new year. So if you are looking to kind of like take control of, you know, new healthy habits, the way you eat is a great way to start. No, so it Saqqara, is a very good time. Yeah. Saqqara is all plant-rich, plant-based, delicious, functional wellness essentials. And food, it's just to really be clear. Yeah, yeah, it's food. Yeah. What do you think it was? Paint? Well, it just you weren't telling you weren't telling people what it was. It's um, nutritionally designed, chef crafted breakfast, lunches, and dinners. It's also just beautiful. It's clean. And it's, it's delivered right to your door. Delicious, so. right to your door. And um, I can't say enough great things about Sakara. I feel very confident that if you tried it, you would continue with yeah, it. We were all using Sakara before this podcast. Yeah, it's a wellness company that is anchored in food as medicine. That is so important. Think about food as medicine. That is what it's there for. Okay, it's not there to fulfill your like emotional meltdown. It's there to be medicine. So they are on a mission to nourish your body through the power of plants. Get on board, people. Okay, so right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off your first order when you go to sakara.com slash foster or enter the code foster at checkout. That is Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash foster to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash foster. 
All right. So also another timely business to be talking about. This is a great time oh. in oh, January. Yeah. Okay. We are going to be talking to you about the Calm app. Calm. A lot of emotions surface during Calm. the holiday season and following the Calm. holiday season. <laughs> no, but we feel like we're happy. We're sad. We're joyful. We're excited. We're also stressed out. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, yeah. So the pa- post holidays is a very good time to download the Calm app and it will help you with, you know, it's a mental wellness app. It gives you a lot of tools to improve the way that you feel. You can clear your head with guided med- meditations or you can improve your focus with the curated music tracks, drift off to sleep with the Calm's imaginative sleep stories for kids and adults, by the way. Um, these are the things that we need to be having in our lives. Guys, that help us stay calm. Calm is the number one mental wellness app. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Number one. Well, we only do business with the, with the best. Nothing but the best. No, we're not going number two. We're not going number two. I don't even. What is number two? Wouldn't even. It's, wouldn't even look on the list. It's calm or nothing. It is calm or nothing. Yep. It's if you ain't first, you're last. Yep. Anyways, we uh, we love this app. Sleep more, stress less, live better. Exactly. Calm um, gives you all the tools for that. Do we have? Oh my gosh, we, we have a good discount. Do and it's a very good discount. So for our listeners, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of forty percent off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com/foster. Go to calm.com/foster for forty percent off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That is calm.com/foster. It sounds like we're talking about two different things. One is your relationship to alcohol and if it's unhealthy or not serving you. And then the other is, even if you have a great relationship to alcohol, the idea that you might be using it to not experience discomfort, that in itself is unhealthy in your life. If every time you are in a situation where you might be socially awkward or uncomfortable or Sarah, like you're saying, like the ex is going to come up somewhere and you want to like quiet those feelings or you feel guilt about something or shame and you're hiding it, that in turn, just as a person, whether you don't behave badly with alcohol, is stopping you and limiting you from connecting to your happiest self. Connecting in general. I mean, that's why people drink on the first date or the first, you know, sexual encounter. It's like, because connecting is too, it's too vulnerable. It's too scary. So like, let's mask it. And I mean, that's why I think. So I want to know what the fix in your mind is because- Sarah, remember when we went, we went to Hawaii like two, three years ago. I don't remember two years ago. Um, and, uh, my friend Charles Porch brought his friend Jeff and we were talking about drinking. And he said, I have a rule. I only drink for positive things. I don't mm-hmm. drink because I'm having mm. a bad day. I don't mm. drink because I'm upset about something. I don't drink because I just went through a breakup or I'm mad. I only drink because I'm having a great night out with my friends mm-hmm. or I'm on a vacation. And I was like, fuck, that's a really like healthy way to do it. But I don't have the ability to know how to do that. Like for me, I want it more when I'm stressed out. I want it more when I'm upset or anxious or stressed. I also want it on a girl's night. I also want it, you know, to have the lychee martini when you take go out to a girl's birthday dinner. Like I, how do you, but why? Cause like you fit in more or you feel like when you drink, maybe you're funnier and then they like you more or first of all, like, rude. I am also funny sober. No, I, I, <laughs> I'm just trying, I'm just trying to understand. Like, I don't know if you what, can... I don't know what the feeling is. It's like a, it's like a desire to, 
to glaze over a little bit and feel light. You know, like Mm. I've never felt like someone who can casually socialize without getting, just being in my head a lot and feeling really self-conscious. And, um, and sometimes I think that wine is going to kind of just give me this like looser, more fun personality. Yeah. And by the way, you don't have to be as intimate. Because when you're levitating a little bit above your body, you don't have to be that intimate. You can kind of just be like, la, 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 and it just feels better. Because being fully intimate with someone, allowing someone to fully see you is scary. Absolutely. But it's also crazy, like, how society just totally glorifies the experience of drinking. Like, remember what Sex in the City did for the Cosmo? I started drinking Cosmos because I thought... (laughs) I want to be Carrie. Well, you can only, you know, girls' nights have to be with the Cosmos. Like, we glorify it. And, and now with social media, all these, like, mommy bloggers, it's, like, funny that they're all, like, wasted because they don't want to deal with their kid. It's so brutal. Like, it's just glorified it's left and right. Absolutely. Well, I want to know what, Amanda, you think yeah. about this idea between do we have to, like, I'm two and a half months in. Mm-hmm. Am I going to aim for just being a happy drinker or do I aim for never drinking again? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, what's the answer if it's not like your wife has left you and child protective services are on your door and your life is in shambles because you're an alcoholic? If it's not like that, and it's kind of like what we're talking about, do you think it's smart to really just remove alcohol from our lives? Or do you think that we should try to get to a place where we can drink more responsibly? So this is, it's a complicated question, right? Um, And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with talking about how I think some people are, and I think it's based on factors, but I think some people are able to kind of say, I'm only going to drink when I'm happy. I'm not going to use it inappropriately. I'm not going to use it to deal with emotions or sadness or things like that. And some of us have different brains. Some of us are more anxious. We may have other mental health issues going on. We might have just our brains could be wired differently. We may have drank in more in our lifetime and that impacts us. Or maybe there is some family history of use of alcohol. So I do think some people might be able to moderate. I still think it's an addictive drug. And I think it's like more difficult to moderate than something that isn't addictive. Um, but I really think it's up to the person to kind of figure out and decide that for themselves, because I can say for myself, for example, I have, you know, after I had stopped drinking for those 90 days and then maybe a year, I had thought about drinking again. And to me, it was like, it's not worth it because the amount of what I can say is moderation is exhausting. It is like decision fatigue. It's what am I going to drink? When am I going to drink? How much am I going to drink? What will, like, when will I stop drinking? What will happen if I do this? What will happen if I do that? And we just exhausted. I don't, I don't know if I have the ability to judge the time it's worth, the times it's worth it versus the times it's not worth it. Cause I'm not doing any weirdly irresponsible drinking, you know, in the morning before I go to work, like driving around town. I'm not doing anything that seems to be negative drinking. It's all kind of, in my mind, positive drinking. So I don't know when, when I'm allowed to. And I think that that is what's like complicated. I mean, I think in general, my kind of tips for someone who is like, I'm not ready to stop drinking, but I want to know how I can more moderate, how I can more safely moderate. My recommendation would be not drinking alone just because it's really, it's unlikely that you're celebrating by yourself alone. (laughs) 
you know? Um, and you're probably using alcohol in that way to kind of deal with emotions on some level. Um, my other recommendation is to wait 24 hours before deciding to drink so that it's not an impulsive thing. It's not something that you just kind of decide last minute because of an emotion you're having or because you had a rough day. And it's something that's but planned the girl's out. dinner will be over by then. <laughs> And I think that that's kind of the point though, is if it doesn't do it for you, right. Limiting the amount of drinks, not drinking alone, having to wait. That's something I think to think about that it might not be worth it for you. Don't you think like culturally, we, we know that French women glass of red wine a day keeps you alive till you're a hundred and the French women look stunning and they're happy and we just sort of like accept it and embrace it and almost like celebrate, right? In that mm-hmm. culture, you know, half of my family are, are they're German and it's beer every night. And it's, yeah. that's just always how it's been. And the parents are healthy and they're happy. And I'm sure they're, you know, masking trauma because let's be honest, who <laughs> is not masking trauma? Nobody. Yeah. And there are levels of trauma, of course. Um, but nobody is not masking some form of trauma. So how do you, what do you say to the people listening going, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm Russian. This is what, <laughs> this is what we do. Alcohol doesn't affect me. Like my mm-hmm. life is perfect. My life is not manageable. I'm in a happy marriage. My job is great. I, you know, what, whatever. Like, what do you mm-hmm. say to the, what do you say to those people? I mean, I would say to them to like look and see in their life if it is negatively impacting them in some way. I mean, we know that alcohol has no positive health benefits whatsoever. By the way, can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, we used to say, right, like you were talking about, doctors used to kind of say a glass of red wine has antioxidants. Um, And we know just based on research that's come out, especially that's come out in the past couple of years, there are no health benefits to drinking alcohol. And it is linked to seven different cancers, especially breast cancer in women, especially we know now that, um, alcohol, essentially, if you look at the data, alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs in that it causes the most health problems, um, and death in the world. If you look at the data, it really negatively impacts your sleep. It really negatively impacts I mean, I think anxiety in general, for example, people use alcohol a lot of times to kind of curb their anxiety, but what happens is alcohol is a depressant. So when you ingest alcohol, your brain wants to be in homeostasis. So it produces cortisol and other anxiety hormones to bring yourself back to homeostasis. But then the problem is the alcohol leaves your body and then you're left with anxiety, which is why so many people get anxiety the next day after they drink in addition to maybe not remembering or thinking about something they said or whatever. I mean, that is kind of my, I mean, I loved quit like a woman. I love Holly Whitaker and her work. Um, but that's kind of where I am is also, I wrote this book. Cause I was like, maybe it does work for you. Maybe you're not having a lot of anxiety. Maybe you don't have a lot of negative impacts. So you don't have to stop drinking, but there are health benefits to reducing. So maybe you could reduce some of your, you know, intake, maybe you could look at some of the ways that it's negatively impacting your life. But at the end of the day, it is, it's your life. It's your choice. It's up to you. Yeah. I think that like you're saying, Sarah, there, obviously there are people who have lived long lives and had a healthy relationship with alcohol and it hasn't killed them. Um, I think it's probably similar to, I mean, not completely, but 
it has energy of like cigarettes. Like there are plenty of people who really like to smoke and they don't really want to quit. And they, and there have been people who have lived long, healthy lives, shockingly, who do smoke cigarettes. Um, and like they are lucky, but most people probably don't have that luxury or that experience. The people I know who have quit smoking, I am one of those people. I love smoking. I loved it. I, I, I loved it, but I quit because it's like, this will ultimately kill you. Not today, not tomorrow, but I just, people don't look at alcohol the same. Mm-hmm. They, they don't. If people looked at alcohol the way they looked at cigarettes, like guys, this is poison. Long-term, this could potentially kill you, but it is just, alcoholism needs a new publicist. Yes, I agree. <laughs> alcohol, alcohol needs. No, I disagree. Alcohol has a great publicist. No, well, but, yeah. Right, no, I but know what you, you, mean, yeah. you know what I'm saying. I want to talk about alcohol and dating. Cause I, yeah. cause I mean, I, I definitely was drinking when I was single and it was like always the first thing you would do on a first date is to have a glass of wine to loosen up and everything. Cause obviously it's the number one place you don't want to sit in uncomfortable feelings where you're being yes. vulnerable and asking someone if they like you. Um, but also sex is involved. And, you know, I think one of the most self-sabotaging and dangerous things that women do is disconnect from their bodies yes. and disassociate. And I think women do it a lot during sex. And I think we learn it at a really young age, you know, when we're starting to be sexual before we're really like ready to be sexual. We're obviously not horny yet. You know, you're in ninth grade, 10th grade being sexual and you're not, you don't feel sexy. Yeah, um, You're doing it to feel cool and to fit in. And you do feel like you've betrayed yourself a little bit or um, not taking care of yourself or gone along with something because it was too uncomfortable to not go along with it. And um, and I do think that that's where a lot of our self-worth or lack of self-worth comes from and like shame in general as women because guys just don't have typically the same experience. And alcohol becomes a really big part of that. It's an excuse for behavior that didn't serve you. It's an excuse to do things that you probably wouldn't let yourself do so. I can't right? even imagine how how people's first experience would not be postponed by years if alcohol was not a factor. I mean, the, mm-hmm. when I was 15, nobody was losing their virginity sober. Nobody. Absolutely. And it's scary to think about, you know, as, as we think, we wonder why so many people aren't happy, why we have so much anxiety. And you think you have anxiety because you didn't sleep well last night, or you think you have anxiety because you have a bill you need to pay. But really, we have like anxiety that stems from such a deeper place. And if you think about as women how fragile we are, you know, and vulnerable and we are, and how like connected we are to like physical touch and affection mm-hmm. and being sexual with someone. And for years or decades, allowing people to have that with us when we had to physically like blur our vision and our feelings to allow it to happen. It just like makes me so sad. Oh my God. I'm having, I'm having, I'm having full PTSD right now. Really? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, most of my early experiences with guys was, I was like wasted. Yeah. Like, like, and my, not like, you know, drinking a whole bottle of tequila, but when you're freaking a young, healthy 14, 15, 16 year old, you're like one beer and you're wasted, you know, but I, 
it it was all alcohol fueled, all of it, because I wasn't ready. I didn't, I, me without me sober, didn't want to have sex or like, whatever, go to third base, like no chance. Like but think no, about that. But, but if your on, real but, self didn't want to. Yes. But I want to be very so sad, but I want to be very clear. Every experience was consensual. Every experience was for, for, for me. I, I didn't ever feel, but if I'm really being honest, going back, none of them would have happened if I wasn't drinking. No. Yeah. I wasn't really ready to have sex probably until I was more like 18. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is, I think that does really speak to just how much alcohol is a drug and how much it's used in a way that, I mean, I think there's so much shame that exists just growing up, you know, like Erin was talking about, like going through puberty is really vulnerable, figuring out yourself is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then there's this pressure also to do these certain things or look at your body in a certain way. And I think that there's a lot of shame that we as women have because of society treating us like objects. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but in order to do like my belief also is that if we have a shot at having a healthy relationship with alcohol, we have to be able to live our life sober without being dependent on alcohol to have sex, to date, to set boundaries, to process our emotions, because most of us never learned to do this. We just started drinking in time to deal with all of this. Oh my God, how do I make sure that my daughters never like drink? The thing we're talking about? Yes, because like, I, it's like to your point, Aaron, and look, okay, fine. Some young teenagers, I mean, especially boys are like horny, but I feel like your first sexual experience is there to be like, to tell your friends, to all those things, but it's never really about like love or I mean, just can any like, of us think about having an orgasm. Oh when my we're god, 16, 17, 18, 19 <clears throat> years old. The idea that we would have even allowed it to happen, you know, mm. that we would have even known how to do that in By the, the way, presence of another person. I don't even right. think I knew what an orgasm was, but now all these young kids have porn. They have you they, were you were a very late bloomer, yeah, but they all have like porn and the internet, and so now they it's like it's a whole other ballgame. They know what it is. I mean, I wonder how much, you know, they they access it. Right. (laughs) Like they probably know how to perform what an orgasm should look like from porn. True. Yeah. I mean, but you have to be connected with your body on some level a lot of times too, to have like a positive sexual experience, to have an orgasm. I mean, you know, when you're, that's the thing is like, I think about my sex life now and like, I have the best sex of my life and I'm like sober the majority of the time, you know, it's a Wednesday night, uh, and it's like no one's drinking. And that's when you have the best sex because you are in your body. I mean, if you think about it, you have to be able to like be connected to your body to have real like joy and pleasure and like to feel what's going on and like experience it when you're disconnected. It's so hard to be there. And so, so much of our early sexual experiences are for the other person. I mean, if alcohol wasn't a factor, our list would be a lot smaller. Yeah. Your list is yeah. well, shockingly my, small. My I don't li- know if yours could get smaller. By the way, my list would have one person on it. <laughs> <laughs> it literally would. But so, Amanda, talk to us because it's, it is daunting and scary thinking about dating without drinking. Yeah. So do you have tools or tips or advice on, A, you know, what your thoughts are around trying to not drink around dating because it probably would help you make better decisions or decisions that'll make you feel better about yourself. Um, 
And like, what does someone do when they're trying to test it out? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first thing I just want to say too, is if you think about alcohol, we talk about it, how it like loosens our inhibitions or lowers our inhibitions. But I also think it's important to remember that our inhibitions exist for a reason. Like (laughs) our inhibitions keep us safe. Our inhibitions tell us when, you know, that person, we don't trust them, or we don't feel like they're a good person to talk to, or maybe we don't feel good. So while yes, we can, it can help disconnect from our anxiety, or if we have like an internal monologue going on, that can be frustrating. That's always going on, but our inhibitions also can serve us, especially in the context Mm. of dating and having sex. So true. They are there to be our alarm bells. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, when I was dating, I feel like guys used to always tell me how uptight I was all the time. (laughs) And and I hated it. I really was like very embarrassed of of being called uptight because I was trying so hard to mimic the behavior of a fun person who was fun and loose and carefree. Like and the chill girl, I feel like. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to be her so bad. And I just um, could, I clearly wasn't faking it well enough. And so I always was so proud of myself when I would get really drunk and be really fun on a date. And mm-hmm. some, you know, guy would be like, you're so fun. And, you know, uh, cause I'd be like, yeah, we could go to that second bar. Like, yeah, I'll do a shot. And I, yeah. I liked the idea of that girl so much better than the uptight person I, I truly was. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of, right, I think a lot of times while it can feel good to kind of lower our inhibitions in the moment, you don't also, it's harder to connect with that person and see if they're actually a good match for you. It's yes. harder to really see if they're the right person if you want to take this further, right? If you want to go on a second date, if you want to go to a second bar, if you want to kiss them, if you want to have sex with them, whatever. And I think without out, like alcohol is kind of like, um, it speeds things up really quickly, right? You can like make a friend instantly. I think all of us have that experience of like feeling like we became best friends with someone in a night, but then like you wake up the next morning and you're like, I don't even remember your name. Yes. Each and every, we love this year. <laughs> Each and every. <laughs> Each and every. Oh my god! Okay, also a great time, January, New Year, yeah. New You. Throw out that nasty, nasty, toxic deodorant that you've been using. Each and every is created with the highest standards. It is made with six simple, safe ingredients like coconut oil, dead sea salt. Um, this deodorant also, it fights odor. I know that a lot of people are, you know, like, oh, I don't know. A skeptical. Those, skeptical. Like, do those deodorants, like, what do you, it fights odor, which is at the end of the day, all we really care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an antiperspirant without aluminum. Yep. They use ethically sourced ingredients. They are vegan. They are cruelty-free. They use sustainable plant-based packaging. I mean, what else could you ask for? We also they also have a discount. Yeah, it smells good. We all, they have tons of flavors. They also- Scents, not flavors. Not, you don't scents. eat Scents. They also have a discount, which basically makes it like free, basically. Yeah. So join us and focus on your self-care this year with each and every. We have a great deal for you guys. It is 30% off your first purchase. Go to eachandevery.com slash foster and use the pro- promo code foster. Do not miss out. It is 30% off. Use the promo code foster at eachandevery.com slash foster. 
Okay, someone wrote me and said, God, the way you talk about Athletic Greens, I mean, Jesus, do you own the company? I mean, <laughs> calm down. Number one, I wish I did. Yeah. They are like, they are doing so unbelievably well. I just well, read Well, maybe somewhere. they should offer for you to own the company. I mean, well, they just appointed like some new, like major baller female CEO or something I was just reading. I mean, this company is killing it. So I don't know about you, but if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm a crazy vitamin taker. It's like, I am, I'm we deficient. We all know that they're liquid. You love we to all know liquid. I'm they deficient are. in everything, but I, I, if I'm not doing AG, I literally, I don't AG1. have- AG1. AG1. I don't have time to get all the vitamins in. I just don't. AG1 is one scoop. That is it. By the way, let's just one be One scoop clear. in the morning and all it's everything you need. All those supplements that you get, okay? Yeah. They're very expensive. They're Sarah's very expensive. Hundreds oh, and God, hundreds no. and hundreds of dollars on these really expensive It's crazy. Things. And it's literally all in one scoop of AG1. Yeah. So Sarah likes to take the expensive route. Not sure everybody else wants to do that. It contains 75- Well, to be clear, one scoop. Yeah, one scoop. One scoop of AG1 yeah. contains. Yeah, 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, greens, superfood blend. And uh, yeah, it's in one serving. So, right. so one scoop of that to start your day. So everything else out and use this. It helps with your gut health, your digestion, supports a healthy immune system, which mm -hmm. we all know we really need right now. Mm -hmm. Supports your energy and focus. It is just like a million things in one. So mm -hmm. do yourself a favor. Get are they still offering? It. They are. They're still offering. Oh, the if vitamin you, D. If you, the vitamin they D. They are going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Which Sarah's biggest passion in life is vitamin D. If you visit athleticgreens.com slash foster today, you will get one year-long free supply of vitamin D. Um, okay, again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash foster to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Having this conversation is so interesting because I just don't even think about alcohol. I don't focus on it. I don't talk about it. I don't... But when you, when you put this all into, like, a box, the way that we are, right, and we're unpacking it all, like, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think to your point there, you know, you had said earlier, like you think about your daughters and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I think about how one of the best gifts that we can give someone is our presence is, you know, kids, everyone can feel when someone's present or someone's not there. My husband drinks, I don't. And like, we will, we have dates where I ask him not to drink because to me, it's like, he's not there sometimes and I can feel it. And I think if you're thinking about daughters and what we can do one of the best things, you know, because people's childhoods can also just be not great because their parents weren't emotionally available. And how are we going to teach our kids how to sit with their emotions and deal with them and work through hard things that come up and stuff like that if we're not able to process those and sit with them and under, you know, we get to have a quick fix and drink and kind of escape, but they don't have anything. Okay. So, so what I think you're saying is, I think, I don't want to paraphrase, but alcohol is not the problem. The problem mm -hmm. are the things you're using alcohol to mask. Yes. Right? The problems are the traumas and the anxieties and the unresolved things that you're using alcohol to not feel or think about. Wait, so we should actually, I think that's what we should get into, right? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the connection between trauma and alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a huge connection. I mean, I think trauma is a very complicated, obviously, thing. But I think in general, while not, I think the distinction is not everything is trauma. 
And most of us have had some type of trauma. It doesn't have to have been something super huge, but trauma essentially is something that shakes our worldview. It changes how we see ourselves. Um, You can have trauma without having PTSD. So most of us have some type of trauma, especially, I mean, one could argue COVID was pretty traumatic, is traumatic. Um, And we use alcohol a lot of times to deal with it rather than, you know, I would say nobody doesn't have trauma, whether it's a kid who watched their, you know, parents who are still married to this day fight a lot. That is traumatic. Like like, there is nobody that cannot trace back trauma. I don't think. I agree. I agree. And that's why I think the distinction is like pretty much everyone has trauma, but not everything is trauma because something that was traumatic for, for me could not be traumatic for you. Yes, exactly. How do you, first of all, why are people more uncomfortable than ever sitting with their feelings? And B, how does someone even go about beginning to heal trauma and getting to the root of their trauma? Of course, like go to therapy, but we should just go back to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And this ties in kind of with Sarah, my recommendation of like, how do you teach your kid, like what's one of the best things you can do with your kids is to teach them how to sit with their emotions and how to process their emotions. So I think this is kind of like one of the most important skills that none of us learn and none of us then like teach. And it's a huge connection with drinking because like the number one thing people do with alcohol is they drink to use it to cope. So in general, how do you sit with your feelings? How do you process them? Um, I mean, you don't have to sit to start, like you don't have to be in a seated position, but it, but it starts with noticing. I mean, most emotions start with a physiological sensation that happens. Like all of us are hardwired with four different, um, physiological emotions, even our, um, even like animals have them of high and low energy and high and low, um, pleasantness we could call it, or like how positive you're kind of feeling in that moment. So if you start with noticing, if you're feeling high or low energy, if you're kind of in a good or a bad mood and then start to recognize what emotion you feel. I mean, most people don't know a ton of emotion words and knowing emotion words, it's called emotional granularity. The more words you can identify of how you feel, the better your mental health is going to be. Wait, the more words or the more worth? The more words, like the more emotion words. Like what's, that, what's an emotion word? Like angry, sad, frustrated, depressed, Yeah, but excited. like, but like yeah. if I'm angry and I'm like, I'm so fucking angry right now. Yeah. Am I really angry or am I sad or am mm-hmm. I, or am I um, insecure or am mm-hmm. I feeling abandoned? Right? Like there's so many layers of yes. these, these words. Right. And that's why it's important to learn more words because a lot of people only know angry, like kids, for example, most of the time they grow up learning only a few words when they're young, they learn angry, happy, and sad. And if you only have those three words to describe how you're feeling, you're going to feel that way, like one third of your life. But if people can start to identify, like you said, the difference between angry and frustrated their actual emotions around it will change because emotions aren't just identified. The experience is created through language. I always really like the word frustrated more than angry because anger has like a blaming energy Mm -hmm. and frustrated is like ownership. 
I'm personally feeling frustrated. I'm frustrated in the situation as opposed to being angry. Because when you're angry, it's like you're looking for someone to, to blame and to mm-hmm. be mad at. And it's just taking it off of you and foisting it onto somebody else. Yeah. I think the word anger can be very frustrating or triggering for some people. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, like even one thing that's like really cool and good to do is even just like looking up the definitions of words. A lot of us don't know or really understand the definitions of words. Like a lot of people don't know the difference between jealousy and envy or guilt mm. and shame. Wait, what um, is the difference between jealousy and envy? Yeah. So jealousy is something you already have. So you're jealous and you feel threatened that someone's going to take it. Where envy is you want something that someone else has. It's why we say we feel jealous when someone, you know, with our significant other or a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, where you're envious of something Mm. that someone else has that you don't have. Mm -hmm. Mm. But a lot of people use the word jealous of someone having success and they're really envious. Aaron's envious envious of my relationship with alcohol. Yeah, I want it for myself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is true. And so can you also talk about the difference between shame and guilt and embarrassment? Because that's, yeah. I think that's interesting. Yeah. So shame is, well, let me start with guilt. Guilt is I did something bad or I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. So it's much more internal. It's who you are. And that's why in general, shame is one of the most corrosive emotions. It's something that really negatively impacts kids it because mm. it robs us of our ability to change. Cause we think like, I am a mistake. I am a bad person versus I made a mistake. So we don't think that we're capable of changing. Wow. Can you talk to that point? I watched a video that you post on Instagram that I really loved about taking things personally. Yeah. <laughs> and how to not oh, take things I personally. I take everything personally. <laughs> no, no. Everything. And I think it ties in, I think it ties into, uh, to shame. Cause you talked about, and I want you to talk more about it, but you talked about how to take criticism mm-hmm. and not take, hear criticism and not take it personally. And you said that somebody told you that they didn't like the format of your book. Yeah. And you, I don't know if you took it personally or not, but you went through the process of kind of how you could take it personally and what yeah. it could mean yeah. and what it actually means. Can you can you talk about the tools you have for that? Because I think this is something that has nothing to do with drinking and everything to do with like every single person on the planet experiences this. Absolutely. So often when someone gives us feedback or criticism or critique, we don't actually think about the words they said. We actually get more upset and think about the meaning that we add or our interpretation. So in the example that I gave, right, someone told me that they didn't like the format of my book. And while that like, you know, was annoying feedback to get, what was actually making me upset when I got that feedback was I made it mean that I wasn't a good writer, that my book wasn't a good book, that I shouldn't be promoting my book all of those things. And that was what actually was making me upset. So, so often I have an exercise where I recommend writing down what the exact feedback was that you got, you know, what did the person say, what happened? And then Mm -hmm. on another column talking about what was my interpretation of it? What did I make it mean about myself? And that is where shame can come in because we can take someone saying, you made a mistake, you did something wrong, and we can make it mean I am a mistake. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get better. I'm never going to change, you know, whatever. Which is why I, okay, that's so interesting. I think it's probably why it's, 
why people get so defensive. If somebody said to me, oh, you're a really intense dinner last night. Uh, it would be so hard for me to be like, shit, I think I was a little intense at dinner. Because what I'm hearing is none of us like you. Yeah. You're always so too intense for us to hang out. We all don't want to be friends with you anymore. We don't know how to tell you. And we can't stand being around you. That is hard for me to accept. And so it's hard for me to say like, oh yeah, I think you're right. Because it doesn't feel isolated. It feels Absolutely. like it's, everything about me is terrible and bad. Amanda, Aaron never apologizes. <laughs> Never. It, it is really hard for me to apologize. Never. And I have very bad qualities. I really do. But I have gotten much, I agree. I have gotten much better. Shut up, Aaron. I have gotten much better about being like, okay, listen. Okay, fine. Like, I do do that. And like, I'm going to da-da-da-da-da. Aaron will literally fight for an hour to plead her case instead of just being like, okay, that was stupid. Why did I do that? So can we analyze her for a second? <laughs> well, this is the kicker. And this goes in with what you were saying, Aaron, is that not only is it your interpretation, but it's your interpretation based on your past. It's based on past things that have happened to you because we all have kind of spots where we're insecure or more sensitive because of feedback we've given. So the context really, really matters. Like sometimes I give the example of someone could tell me that I'm really uh, short and I'm not short. So like I wouldn't even think about that feedback. It wouldn't really like, like stay with me. Like, wait, like physically short or like short? Yeah, oh, yeah like I'm oh. a short person and I'm not, oh. I'm like five, six. So it wouldn't really like impact me, right? Mm -hmm. But if you take that same thing and you put it on, I don't know, let's say someone who was short and was insecure about it or like a guy, it could like ruin, right? Their day because they could make it mean that they're never going to be in a relationship and maybe they're never going to be happy and mm. they're not attractive or all of these things. So it's not really a lot of times about the feedback we're getting. It's about our interpretation. What it means to us. We, yeah, really, right. we, we really are mean to short guys. Sidebar. <laughs> like, are. Why, oh, why are that's we, so true. Why are. are we so mean to short guys? Like, short girls are adorable. They're adorable. Yeah. They even get this little nickname. They're little, you know, they were, they're referred to as like spinners, which that's sexual. Oh, Sarah, that yeah, is. That's you a are sexual, such a mom. I know. But <laughs> oh, like, Sarah. No, but like, we're really mean spinners. to, we really, I just, what side note, let's not be so yes. mean to short guys. Like, they, you know. Agree. Well, I agree. Yeah. I've always felt like a guy is only as short as he thinks he is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If a guy walks in the room mm -hmm. and he's just one of these overcompensating short guys that just has the energy of a guy that's pretending like he's, you know, or tall or, you know, he's trying to have big dick energy and it just feels so small, then he feels so short. But then there's got there are guys where it's like, it feels like they don't even know that they're short. Yes. They walk into a room and they have just as much confidence as if they were a 6'3". And they have so much confidence walking up and asking a girl out. And that, to me, is all that really matters. Like, you just want a guy who presents like he he deserves to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's all it's about. It's about a confidence. Yeah. And I think like putting you at ease, right? Like that he's leading and he can lead the conversation exactly. or the interaction. Um, okay. This is perfect for me. Mm -hmm. Rasa. Mm -hmm. It is an adaptogenic coffee alternative. Mm -hmm. Okay. With incredible selection of different blends that you need to try. I, as we all know, I love to talk about it. I quit coffee. And your you life know, has changed. My life has, you know, 
My life is well. A lot of people want to quit coffee, but they don't know how. Yeah. Like many people want to quit coffee. We all know how bad coffee is for you. What we I've all know learned, it's acidic. All the things. Yeah. What I've learned about quitting coffee is that it's really not about the coffee. It's about the routine. So mm. if you can put something healthier into mm-hmm. your cup, into your mug, that is actually creating wellness in your body, that's all you really need. You need it to be hot, or if you're used to iced, iced. You need that cup, and you need the cup in your hand, and you need to know that you can, you know, have that routine every day. Mm-hmm. So instead of caffeine, Rasa energizes with herbs and uses 15 adaptogens and six mushrooms across their blends. They offer 10 amazing blends like cacao, bold, calm, and welderberry, which by the way, I quit drinking too. So I had the calm one night instead of a glass of wine and it was really nice. They even have an AIP friendly version of original, which is an autoimmune protocol. I have an autoimmune disease, so that helps me. Plus Rasa is also sustainably sourced uh, and buys fair trade or direct trade, which is great. Um, but it really helps dig deep to help with your nervous system health. That is so important. Well, the thing that kills me about coffee is that it dehydrates you. So it like makes your skin look bad. Yeah, that's all you have to know. Is that's if it all makes you got to know. Dry. It makes you like, you're all dehydrated. Like I want something to hydrate me. Exactly. So uh, we are telling you really should try Rasa. They even have an online quiz. You can evil, easily find the perfect blend just for you. Uh, we have an awesome deal. To get you started, it is 20% off your first purchase. Go to wearerasa.com and use our special promo code FOSTER20. The promo code is FOSTER20 for 20% off at wearerasa.com. That is R-A-S-A. There's something that Amanda talks about in her book that I think is really interesting that is this, um, the iceberg theory, mm-hmm. the iceberg metaphor, which is that... Oh, I thought you were going to do the umbrella, the umbrella one. <laughs> well, we can get to the umbrella also, but to me, I'm fascinated with this idea that like, you know, whatever your behaviors are, whatever you're seeing someone else's actions are, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole like root, 85% or something. Did you say 80%? Yep, 85. 85% um, of the iceberg is still under the water that you can't see. All you're seeing is someone's behavior. And that behavior is just such a small por- portion of what's going on with that person. And that that's the part that we cover up with alcohol, right? Then there's this whole iceberg underneath the water that's the trauma and your life experiences and your fears and anxieties and insecurities, the reason why the behavior is there. And that, that can you just talk more about that and how we should sort of address the rest of the iceberg? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it also goes into this theory also kind of talks about why we can become, we can use more than one substance. We can use more than one behavior um, to deal with it. Cause a lot of times, sometimes someone will stop drinking and maybe they will then end up with another behavior that's doing the same thing, right? That's numbing them out. That's allowing them to escape. That's taking the edge off of life. Um, so yeah, essentially the bottom of the iceberg is anxiety. It's trauma. It's all these things that are kind of causing us to act out. And if you think about an iceberg, it can't ever exist without a top. There's always a piece that floats on top, but most of what's going on, what causes what's happening on top is, is underneath because all of us who end up, you know, with an addiction or with just like drinking too much, like we've been talking about, we have stuff going on under the surface that creates that. If we felt like we could socialize without alcohol, if we could cope with our emotions without alcohol, if we could set boundaries without alcohol, alcohol would be way less attractive and maybe you would only yeah. use it 
to celebrate. What can you be doing as a parent to show your kids or to help your kids have a healthy relationship with alcohol? Like the way that you drink at dinner or don't drink, I'm sure has an effect. Like Sarah, I think you give your kids a very healthy perspective. Tommy likes to have like a beer with dinner sometimes, but he doesn't get wasted. And you are probably never drinking in front of your kids unless it's like a celebration or we're having people or having people over or something. Um, Like how can you give your kids a better relationship Well, I think that there's a level of not making it off limits, not shaming people. I think being open and talking about it, I think, especially like once, when someone goes to college and stuff like that, being clear about like, you understand that they're going to drink and not kind of have this don't ask, don't tell policy. I think that creates a lot more shame and hiding and things like that. Um, But in general, I think one of the best things you can do besides obviously modeling not getting drunk and kind of healthy drinking behavior of not using it, you know, not saying phrases like mommy needs a glass of wine to deal with this obviously is not, not a good thing to do. No, but we're laughing, but that is a lot of people do that. And they really don't think there's anything wrong with saying it. Yeah. Sarah, I think I've said that to your kids like a lot. I've been like, I need my glass of wine. I need my, I totally have said that in front of your girls. Let's have a conversation around, you know, having a partner who drinks and Mm -hmm. we don't drink. I'm just deciding that you and I are in the same category yeah. now. Two and a half <laughs> months in, we're both sober. Like something that I've noticed, talking about sort of having friends who are drinking while we're not drinking or husbands drinking when we're not drinking, is um, in the last couple of months, I've become like, you know, when someone's vegan and like, you know, find if you want to know who's vegan, just don't worry because they'll tell you kind yeah. of thing. Um, I've like really been loud and proud about not drinking. And I think I do it as a like social coping mechanism because I feel a little self-conscious yeah. out at a party or a dinner saying I'm not drinking. So I really like to over explain it. Um, and it also, I just feel very proud that I've pulled it off for as long as I have. Yeah. Um, but I've noticed that when someone says, uh, you know, why aren't you drinking or, or like unintentionally I lost like 10 pounds Mm -hmm. and I honestly (laughs) credit most of it to not drinking anymore. Mm -hmm. And I didn't expect that to happen, but I, I saw that there was all this inflammation that I always have from Mm -hmm. drinking and it makes it sound like I'm this like bloated alcoholic, but, um, it's not that I was drinking so much. It's just that it it really is inflammatory for me and I really am sensitive to it. And, and I, uh, lost like 10 pounds and all these girls have been saying to me, you know, Oh my God, you look so skinny. What are you doing? And I said, I stopped drinking. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and instead of me like telling them that they should stop drinking, I just talk about how much it has benefited me Mm -hmm. and say how much better I feel and how much better my life has gotten. And I see that person kind of register it and go like, shit, should I stop drinking? Mm -hmm. Like, is that the way to talk about it? Like, how do you deal with your friends continuing to drink while you aren't or your partner continuing to drink when you're not? Yeah. I mean, in general, I don't think it's effective to try to convince someone to stop drinking. So I think the way you're going about it is like the best thing you can do in terms of sharing about how it's positively impacted your life. People do sometimes, like you said, kind of regardless of whether you're sharing just because you wanted to stop drinking or you're kind of sharing because you had a problem, people do sometimes flip it on themselves and they can sometimes become defensive and kind of say like, well, I don't have a problem or you don't think I should stop drinking, you know? So I think it is good to kind of keep it on yourself and your own reasons for doing that. Um, but to answer like the other question of just how do you deal and stuff like that, I think that you really learn when you're sober who your friends are, who is worth 
you spending time with. I mean, when I got sober, there were people in my life who still drank. There still are now. And some people I had a good enough relationship with. I loved being around them and we're still friends. And some people I really realized the only thing we had in common was drinking or Mm. I didn't even really like them that much. And -hmm. those friendships kind of faded away. So it's, it's kind of all about waking up and kind of not having a drunk self and a sober self, but really integrating your truth. Can you, can you heal your relationship with alcohol without giving it up completely? Good question. I think it depends on the person. I know it's so annoying. I wish I could just say yes or no. I think it depends on the person. I think that some people, they can't. Some people, they've drank too much. They have too much anxiety. They've struggled too much. The, you know, the benefits just aren't, or the the benefits aren't worth the cost. But I do believe if you take an extended period of time from drinking and you are able to kind of follow some of those guidelines that I was talking about, where you can enjoy it kind of for positive experiences. You learn how to set boundaries. You learn how to have sex and date and deal with your emotions without alcohol. And you just use alcohol in a way to kind of be in community with someone or celebrate something with someone. I do think that that's absolutely possible. It's just impossible. I think sometimes to know who that person is. Amanda. Yeah. What's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? Um, I used to be very dependent on drinking to be fun, quote unquote, and cool, quote unquote. And so my whole identity wasn't that I was fun. It was that I was fun or cool or confident when I drank. And the greatest thing, I mean, there's a lot of great things, but the greatest thing for me is being able to like, I mean, I can be fun. I can go out. I can go dancing with, I mean, I had like a sober bachelorette party and you like went clubbing. It was so fun. And I can be this person because of who I am, not because of the alcohol. And Wait, were your just, friends pissed that you made them have a sober bachelorette? How did that go down? Uh, some of them drank and oh, then okay. some of them didn't. Yeah. Cause I do have some friends who are sober. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, the confidence, I think that just comes from being like, this is me. I'm not dependent on something. I'm going to be able to go home. I can drive myself home if I want. I know the next day I can like do what I want and take care of myself. And I'm not dependent on being hungover or whatever. It's just, it's helped my confidence so much. Yeah. That's so interesting. There is one thing you cover in your book that you think would benefit like the majority of our listeners, like one thing, what would that be? That is a good question. Wasn't mine. Sorry. I can't take, I can't take credit for it. I was going to, I was, I was going to be like, yeah, I just, sorry. I have great questions, but it's, it, was, it wasn't mine. I knew it wasn't yours and I was going to let you have it. Um, I think the one thing is I'm really proud of, I have a whole chapter on emotions. I explain in extreme detail how to process an emotion, how to work through an emotion, what you can do to take better emotional health of yourself. Um, I explain exactly what emotions are and how to break them down. And I just think everyone needs to learn how to do that because we don't know how to sit with our emotions and process them. How to create how to create a life that you don't want to escape from. Mm, that yeah. is the most universal thing that everybody should read this and and look and pay attention to because drinking, smoking weed, picking a fight, having rage attacks, you know, whatever your shit is mm. that you turn to to not sit in uncomfortable feelings, you need to learn how to make a life that you don't want to escape from. We all need that. 
Yep, absolutely. So then would that be the answer to the next question, which is what is one small change aside from giving up drinking that would make people's lives better? Like what about the person listening going, I'm just not ready to make that kind of a commitment, but I want to start mm-hmm. somewhere. Like Another great question. That one also was not my question. <laughs> Um, I think it could be that, um, the other thing I would say too, is, um, learn how to practice real self-care. And what I mean by that is self-care is not just like getting, you know, treating yourself, getting your nails done, things like that. Like real self-care is taking care of your future self. So it's like, if you know that your future self does need a good manicure, continue. (laughs) And that's why that could be right. But it's also like, a lot of self-care is like meeting your basic needs. It's like resting when you need to, it's eating enough, it's drinking water, it's um, taking a break, it's going outside. It's these small things. I also would say if you're someone listening and you're like, I'm not ready to give up drinking, then be sure that alcohol is not doing any of the things that we're talking about. Be sure you're not using it to disconnect. Yes. You're not using it to not sit in uncomfortable feelings. Make sure you are doing it when you're celebrating something or you're having a happy experience, not because you want to disconnect from the uncomfortable feelings. If you want to continue drinking, which you are 100% in your rights to do, yeah. then you should make sure it's a healthy part of your life. And that, and that should be in your control if you don't have a drinking problem. Did you guys talk about the link between drinking and eating disorder? Like, is, is that, do those go, is that, a, is there a correlation? Disordered drinking and disordered eating. Yes, so that, um, we didn't talk about that, but that is a, a huge thing that I talk about in my book as well, um, of how much those overlap. And I mean, if you look at studies, a conservative estimates say, especially in women, up to 40% of women that, um, have a substance use disorder also struggle with disordered eating or some type of eating disorder in general. So they really, really go together, especially, I mean, I think about people who often will not eat before they drink to save calories, right. Or they end up eating things that don't make them feel good when they're drinking. Um, you know, alcohol can lead to weight gain and then people end up with an eating disorder trying to fix that. So they're really correlated. I feel like it also gives you wrinkles. And for me, that's just, that's enough. Uh, That's enough for me to not do it. Cause you know what? I want to look young and, um, well, alcohol is dehydrating. Yeah, it is. And it also can cause... You do not want to dehydrate your skin. Mm -mm. It also can cause uh, broken capillaries a lot of times too. um, Because if alcohol... If your body can't break down alcohol fast enough, it gets released. Your body produces a specific chemical that I don't remember off the top of my head that gets released into your bloodstream and can... Mm -hmm. That's why you get flushed when you drink. Right. Uh, You know what I just am realizing and thinking about when you guys are talking about this? And then I never really realized and clicked from it before is that I'm thinking about when I'm, when it's younger and more insecure and dating. And if the date was ending and I know it's going to be like the second date where he's going to try to kiss you and he drops you off or whatever. And I would have these thoughts of like, oh shit, I'm not drunk enough. Mm-hmm. I need to be so drunk that I won't feel the nervousness I'm about to feel. Like that feeling when someone's going to kiss you or you don't know what's about to happen after the date. And that stress and fear I would have of like being self-conscious or like, oh God, I don't really want to be like naked in front of this person. Or what if I just, I don't know. Sometimes I would feel so, so nervous about what that was going to be like. And I would feel like 
I have to be straight up drunk we to are, be able to survive. We already covered this, but continue. You know, Sarah, you have a really a way of whenever I choose to be vulnerable, <laughs> you get really I just shit all over it. Yeah, you really shit all over it. Sorry. Well, I have something new to say oh, okay, <laughs> in okay, response okay. to that, Erin. Okay, good. I think okay. another thing to think about with that too is like when we numb the the hard parts of life, right? When we numb the emotions that are hard or the the nerves, right? If, is someone going to kiss us? We also numb the positive emotions. We numb that excitement. We numb the butterflies. We numb, you know, joy and things like that. And we can't, alcohol just numbs everything. And we can't, like to what you were talking about, Aaron, we can't choose what we numb and what we don't numb. Alcohol just (gasps) takes it all. Question. Were you drunk when you married? Not drunk. Did you drink before you got married? Is this for me? No, for Aaron. Oh. Wait, what do you mean before I got married? Like before, like your vows, like before you walked. Oh, the vows. Yes. Oh, yes. You I was not drunk, throwing, but I was. You were throwing. Back I was those drinking. Bevs. I was drinking a bev beforehand because I was so nervous. Yeah, I was really nervous, but I couldn't. I was like too nervous to get enough down. I was honestly, I was trying to like chug. I was trying to like chug, <laughs> chug remember. a bev. I remember because I was like desperate to feel a little buzz, so I could kind of not. I was really nervous, you know. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't. I was stone cold sober up there. And I was probably wishing I was a little buzz. By, by the way, I'm sure a lot of people drink before that they walk down the aisle. Of course. Yeah. I mean, mimosas, champagne. I feel like that's the whole thing. Yeah. And by the way, so many brides get so sick on their wedding because they yeah. haven't eaten in like nine months. And they're, they're the skinniest that they've ever been. And they don't eat because they're too nervous. And then they get too drunk. And um, I actually did not get drunk at my wedding. And I remember... Simon and I both kind of consciously being like, I let's did. not get too drunk. I did. I was. Yeah, you're fun. You're 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 fun when you drink. But we both. But we both said we want to remember this. Like we want to really be yeah. present. And it was way more fun to not drink to get drunk. I way. only got drunk because I had to do that stupid fucking dance where I had to get up in front of the whole place and do a synchronized dance. And you were nervous. <laughs> I I chugged. I chugged. And you Isn't know that what? So funny. You know what though? I don't really regret it. Is that a bad thing to say? I I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think I could have done the dance. I, I will. I'm gonna change after this podcast, but I'm just being. I'm just being honest. I don't know if I could have done it. But you, but I think we've already established you really don't need to change your drinking habits, Sarah. You drink exactly how one should drink, not often, you know, not consistently, and for fun. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, yeah. I wasn't present. I wasn't present though during that dance. I don't remember it. That's okay. All right. Well, listen, I think this was extremely eye-opening. I think people are well, going— you had literally no point in being here. Oh, okay. So you brought almost nothing to the conversation. <gasps> okay. <laughs> um, Amanda, everybody should get your book. Can you please tell people where to get your book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's out kind of wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, all of those fun— places. Um, yeah. And to remind everyone, it's called Not Drinking Tonight. It's called Not Drinking Tonight, a guide to creating a sober life you love. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I am your, your biggest customer right now. I maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm sober forever now. Well, I think, I think two and a half months is awesome. And I think you get to keep exploring and seeing how it impacts your life. And I would just create a list of what are the positive benefits can you be my sponsor? So when I want to have that glass of wine, like, but you truly, can email like, what me. does somebody do when they yeah. want to have that glass of wine? Like what, if they can't email you, cause not everyone's going to be as close to you as I am. Yeah. What does somebody do just as our kind of end point here? Yep. 
um, when they are struggling, but they don't want to come across dramatic and they want to get talked out of it? Well, I think trying to find some type of community. I mean, there are communities on social media that are alternatives to AA. Um, There's something called like the luckiest club. That's a great resource that does virtual meetings. Um, There's a, an Instagram called sober girl society that does meetings. So Mm. I would like kind of put into Instagram the word sober and you can see what resources are available. Um, But beyond that, I would, even if someone in your, you don't have someone in your life who doesn't drink, I would have, like, I would talk to someone and tell them, I really don't want to drink anymore. And I want you to be the person that when I call, you help me not drink. I don't Mm -hmm. care whether you think I should or shouldn't. This is my goal. Will you support me in that? Mm. And then having that person. Okay. All right. Well, everybody, please let us know what you thought of this episode, because I think that it's going to be one that is going to have a lot of feedback um, and, um, get Amanda's book and follow her on Instagram. She's a great follow. Uh, a lot of really insightful videos that are about drinking or not about drinking, just about self-esteem and how to be, um, I'm not gonna say a happier person, but how to be more connected with your true self. Yep. And my handle is therapy for women. On Amen. Instagram. Therapy for women. Amen. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you, Amanda. Thank You're thank awesome. You. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced Just by... Be, can you, do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our, Our associate, associate producer is Montana McBearney. Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great.